I went over to see June and I said, June, I said, you all right? She said, I'm not feeling good. She says, why did she say I got this awful headache? So she wanted to get some aspirin. There are times in our lives when an event is so great that it's seared into our memory. My name is Wanda Brooks. I'm in Rochester, New York. For Wanda, that event occurred in late May 1967, when her close friend June Maloney fell ill after attending her son's fifth birthday party. Two days later, Wanda was with June in her apartment, and by now June was very sick. And outside in the corridor, June's ex-husband, Joe Maloney, was having an intense conversation with another man. I asked Joe, I said, who was that man? And he said she, he was the doctor. He called the doctor for her. Wanda told June that Joe was outside talking to a doctor. June looked frightened and asked Wanda not to leave her alone with Joe. She says, Wanda, don't leave yet. And I tried to stay, but he stood in our doorway. Who did? Joe did, watching us. So she, she quietly just wouldn't talk anymore. He didn't want me there. He did not want me there. Did he almost shoo you out? Mm-hmm, he did. She said, no, I want her to stay here. And then finally I just, I just left. I thought, oh man, I shouldn't leave her there by herself. I wish I had the insight to know that somebody could be that mean. I'm Pavel Barter. From RTE Documentary on One, this is Runaway Joe. Episode 3, Manhunt. As we move through this episode, you're going to hear about poisoning, murder, violence, suicide and control. So if you're affected by any of these themes, please reach out to rte.ie forward slash helplines, where you'll find contacts for a variety of support networks around abuse and domestic violence. At the end of episode two, June felt something had happened to her at her son's fifth birthday party, that her drink, a Manhattan cocktail, had been spiked. June had been separated from Joe for about four months and was in a new relationship with Lee DiClemente, who by now was also afraid of Joe and afraid of what he could do to June. So the day after June was taken to hospital, Lee DiClemente contacted his lawyer and subsequently the police. And here is part of the statement Lee gave to police about what happened to June at her son's fifth birthday party. After the party, a lot of people said she said, I don't feel good. I think he's trying to kill me. She said, Lee, I love you and I don't want to die. I said, has he said anything to make you think he put anything in the drinks? She said, no, but he's acting awfully funny, and she was worried. I asked if she wanted me to come over and pick her up, and she said, no, better not, he'll kill you. She was referring to an incident that happened about two weeks prior, where her husband was beating her up, and I called the police, and they never even showed up. I talked to her again that evening about seven. She felt worse. She said she had company. I assumed it was Joe. She couldn't keep anything down. Over the next few days, Joe stayed with June in her apartment, controlling the situation. June must have been absolutely terrified. Two days after the party, June was taken into hospital by Joe. 
By the time her friend Wanda visited June in hospital, she had fallen into a coma. Everyone wondered how all this had happened. Everyone except Joe Maloney, who insisted to Wanda that this was June's own doing. Well, he told me that they all thought that June tried to commit suicide. And, and I, didn't, I didn't say anything. I don't recall saying anything back to him because I knew that wasn't true. That was not true. She would not commit suicide. You don't commit suicide if you're planning your life to do things. Joey would have started school in September. Do you think she really wanted to put that on Joey? No, not at all. This woman would not commit suicide. I bet all my life on it. So you went to the hospital with Joe. Mm -hmm. what, What was June like when you saw her there? She just lay there. She was motionless, just motionless, like she was sleeping. Only uh, her color was pasty looking. When I went in to see her, we were there, Joe and I were there together, but I remember him saying to the nurse, what will happen if I pull this plug? And the nurse turned and said she would die. And we left the hospital and he brought me home. What was Joe's demeanor like? Was he nervous? Was he... No, he wasn't nervous. I wouldn't call him nervous at all. He had, he tried to tell me that he, she committed suicide. And uh, Lee was the cause of it. Lee DeClemente's lawyer contacted the hospital to check that what Lee was telling him about June was accurate. On Tuesday afternoon, May 30th, at approximately 6.15 p.m., Mr. DeClemente called me at my home. He told me he spoke with the deceased before Saturday evening, May 27th, and Monday morning, May 29th, and she was sure her husband had put something in her drink on Saturday at the party. I called Strong Memorial Hospital to check and discovered Mrs. Maloney was indeed a patient there and that her condition was critical. I took DeClemente to the detective bureau and the investigation was initiated by that office with the cooperation of Mr. DeClemente and myself. Doctors at the hospital were uncooperative, however, because, according to detectives, Joe had convinced them that June had attempted suicide. Tragically, a week later, on June the 5th, 1967, June Fisk died in Rochester's Strong Hospital. Even now, more than 50 years on, Wanda is still traumatised by the circumstances of June's death. When she died, when they told me she died, I just lost it. I just lost it. I was a basket case. I couldn't eat, I couldn't sleep. I thought, oh my God, what could I have done? to help her and you know but the police said that there was nothing that I could have done to help her it was too late and you were a young girl at the time you yeah. were not how old were you 19 years old and how old was June June was 27 she was a remarkable young woman so full of life the police investigation immediately leapt up a gear 
and on the day June died, Wanda, who was caring for June's two children, received a call from the Monroe County Sheriff in Rochester. And he says, Wanda, he says, I want you to know that everything will be fine. I want you to come downtown to the sheriff's office. And I was questioned by the police. Well, they got me out of the apartment to go in and get Joe. Joe, you see, was in June's apartment across the hall from Wanda. The cops wanted Wanda and the children gone for their own safety before they made a move. At 6 p.m. on June the 5th, 1967, a detective crawled in through the window of June's locked apartment with his gun drawn. Joe Maloney knew what was coming. He was in the uh, broom closet hiding. They went in, got arrested him. Detective Mahoney, one of the arresting officers, voiced here by an actor, described the scene. He must have seen us pull up when we got there. As we ascended the steps, I heard the click of a door, and there was no reply when I knocked on the door, but I'd already sent men to cover the other doors. Luckily, there was a window unlocked. I climbed through the window and drew my gun and told him to freeze. June's boyfriend, Lee DeClemente, played a critical role in bringing Joe's alleged involvement in her death to the notice of local police, as Lee's lawyer later detailed. If it had not been for the phone call I received from Mr. DeClemente the day after Mrs. Maloney went into the hospital, neither the DA's office nor the police department would have had any knowledge of this incident. Consequently, Mrs. Maloney's death may have gone unquestioned. Word of June's death soon spread to her friends and work colleagues. I was in my apartment. I was living there because the... This is Marcia Curry and Kay Walter in a diner near Rochester. We first met them in our last episode. Kay had been in high school with June. And Marcia, she'd worked as a nurse alongside June. And you got a call? I got a call from my mother. I can remember exactly where I was standing, looking out a window. I was, it was during the morning because I hadn't gone to work yet. And she told me that June had been killed by her husband. And of course, I knew who her husband was, so I, I was very shocked. Somebody called me. I just remember saying, what? And I just did not believe that that actually happened. I don't know. It was, uh, it was just shocking, you know. At that time, things did not like that. didn't happen to people from this quiet little sleepy, you know, bedroom town. Did you go to the funeral? Yes. I just remember being kind of like a long room and remember the... I remember talking to someone, so it must have been Dale. Dale. That's June's brother. But, I mean, what can you say? Or, sorry, you know, we didn't discuss Joe at all. Uh, and it was, again, it was a group of people from the class of 59 that went. And this tragedy did not end with June's death. Joey and Patty Ann, June and Joe's children, their mother was gone. And now so too was their father. They had effectively become orphaned. After Joe was arrested, they called the social services to come and get the children. Now, if you ever want to hear anything so heartbreaking is when Joey locked himself in the bathroom. Here's this five-year-old kid, just lost his mother, and he locked himself in the bathroom, and he says, Wanda, please don't let him take me. Please don't let him take me. 
and I had to let him take him. I couldn't keep him. I felt so bad. I'll never forget that as long as I live. It broke my heart. That poor kid. And Patty Ann was too little. She didn't know. But Joey knew what, you know, what went on and everything, you know. My heart broke for him. And he finally opened the door and he came out. And she packed all their stuff up and took them. In the U.S., the first step in a prosecution is to arraign someone. That's to bring them to court to inform them of the criminal charges against them. Joe Maloney was arraigned before Rochester City Court on June the 6th, 1967, the day after his arrest, on a charge of first-degree murder. John C. Little was the, was the elected district attorney, um, and I, I don't We're really back in the kitchen of Wendy Lehman, the retired prosecutor for the Rochester District Attorney's Office, looking through the case files on Joseph Maloney, a wanted man who remains at large today. And how did Maloney plead? Not guilty, as everyone does. Wanda, June's neighbour and friend, was called to testify in court. That was hard to do, because every time I turned around, they were saying, oh, that's hearsay, or, you know... I started crying. I just started bawling. Yeah. I was up on the stand. I told them what I knew. The fact was she was fine when she left the house. She wasn't fine when she came back. Wanda didn't have to be concerned. The evidence was stacked against Joe Maloney. An autopsy determined June had ingested a lethal dose of the same type of chemical Joe had taken from the home laboratory of his close friend, Neil Dunkelberg. And an autopsy was done, I presumably, after her death? Mm-hmm, yes. And what did they ascertain from the autopsy? That it was methyl alcohol. Methyl alcohol, also known as wood alcohol, is colourless and highly toxic. And when mixed in something like a Manhattan cocktail with whiskey, sweet vermouth and bitters, there's no way June could have been aware she was drinking something that could kill her. Maloney had been to his friend, the chemist, and ask him about how he could poison a, dro- a dog when there wouldn't be any trace left. And his friend had said methyl alcohol. And um, then at a later date, um, Maloney went back to the house and persuaded um, his friend's sister to let him into the basement to get it. And he took a sizable quantity of the methyl alcohol and I think at a later date, he told her that he'd, he'd dropped it and broken it, so he had, didn't have anything to give them back. Exhibit A. The police found a jar containing residue of methyl alcohol in the basement of Maloney's home. Not only that, but they had damning on-the-record testimony from Gail, Neil Dunkelberg's sister, read here by a voice actor. He said the stuff was in the cellar, but my brother Neil didn't want him to go down there. So I poured it into a small mayonnaise jar and gave it to Joe. He later told me he had dropped the jar and that it had broke. But when I asked if he wanted more, he told me no, he had gotten it for himself somewhere else. At his arraignment hearing before a jury, everyone, 
except Joe Maloney and his lawyers, agreed that Joe should go on trial for first-degree murder. And so he was indicted. They indicted Joe for murder. Yeah. Yeah. Rochester Democrat and Chronicle, June 16, 1967. Husband indicted as poison slayer. Joseph Maloney, 31, accused of fatally poisoning his estranged wife by putting methyl alcohol in a cocktail she drank, was indicted by a county grand jury yesterday on a first-degree murder charge. This is the first murder by poison case in this county in about 35 years. The legal road had yet to run out for Joe Maloney. An indictment in the US is just a formal charge. It comes before a trial. What would be the normal process following an indictment? He would be kept in jail, in, in Monroe County Jail, pending further legal proceedings. But that isn't what happened. The court transcripts reveal that somehow, Joe managed to persuade his lawyers, who in turn persuaded the court, to send Joe to a hospital for psychiatric evaluation before his trial date. I had a conversation with my client, Mr. Maloney. As his attorney, I respectfully request, subject to the district attorney and the court's approval, that prior to the matter being tried, Your Honor, that he be sent to the hospital for a mental examination so that I may be assured that I can proceed with the defense. The court will order defendant be committed to the Rochester State Hospital for a period not to exceed 60 days for observation. Wendy Lehman. To report back to this court based upon its findings and the ability of the defendant to stand trial. And that was on, I think, September 8th, 1967. So the judge approved this? Yeah. Right, the judge had to order it. That's the only way you'd get there, yeah. Clearly, Joe bamboozled He was apparently very good at that. Well, he was a great con artist, I think. Is, perhaps. But what the judge didn't know was that his decision fell perfectly into Joe's plan. The name of the hospital Joe was sent to, Rochester State Hospital, You've heard that name before. It's the same institution where Joe's father worked, the same institution where Joe himself worked, a place he knew like the back of his hand. He knew the hospital. He had worked there and his father had worked there. As? Um, Maloney, I think, had just worked there as a, as a custodian, a janitor, but he knew his way in and out. And the way out is exactly what he was after. The police report on the 25th. To help her tell the story of what happened next, Wendy has found a police report in the case files on Joe Maloney. They believe that he had planned to escape from the hospital right from the minute he got there, and that he had confided in a certain Lance Lohm, who was a teenager, a white male, 16 years, um, and they had been associates you know, during the time that he was there, and he told Lance that he had $3,000 that he could get to, and he'd give him some of the money if he helped him. Maloney first got to the hospital, he planned an escape by taking one of the billiard balls from the billiard table, putting it same into a sock, and then having his two friends distract the attention of the, the attendants while he hit him on the head with a weapon, but that didn't happen. Instead, Joe bided his time. According to a report, the psychiatrists examining him found 
No signs of a mental disorder, except for that of a psychopath. He thus was able, in our opinion, to fully understand the nature of the charges against him, the proceedings, and to aid his attorney. On the 25th of September, 1967, four months after June's death, the Red Cross were holding a dance on the fifth floor of the hospital. Joe, says Wendy Lehman. He was at the dance. Lance saw him by the exit door of the hallway in the ward. It was about 7.50 p.m. He turned away. I looked back, he didn't see him. He went out the exit door and he knew where the hallways were and everything and he walked out. Joe Maloney made his way down to the basement and from there outside, he was gone. Rochester Democrat and Chronicle, September 26, 1967. Police in Monroe and surrounding counties put out an extensive dragnet last night to recapture an escaped murder suspect who fled Rochester State Hospital about 8 p.m. They're looking for Joseph Maloney, 31, accused in the poisoning murder of his 26-year-old estranged wife, June. He was described as extremely dangerous. The assistant director of the hospital said Maloney apparently fashioned a key from part of an electric razor, which he then used to unlock a door on the fifth floor of the hospital. Police began an extensive manhunt around cities in upstate New York. They stopped cars and staked out airports in the region. There was some indication, says Wendy Lehman, that Joe Maloney was a qualified pilot. Um, this is a copy of Joseph Michael Maloney's pilot's license. Dated 1956, was issued for a single-engine private pilot. Specific locations in Rochester were put under surveillance. This was a manhunt. A man in green pajamas has been spotted along East Henrietta Road. Tips flooded in and were reported in local newspapers. Sergeant John Naka of the state police said he received a telephone call from a man who reported he had seen Maloney driving south on Route 15A. As the hours and days passed, the search spread out further. A colleague of June's was living in Buffalo, around 70 miles west of Rochester at the time. She's voiced here by an actor. My husband, he knew the story about June and Joe, and he came home one evening and he said, do you have a picture of Joe? I remember you showing me a picture of him. He had red hair and freckles, right? And he says, I think I just saw him in a diner when I stopped to get coffee. I said, in Buffalo, downtown Buffalo? I said, well, are you sure? Should we report it to somebody? And he said, well, the guy that was sitting next to me had black hair, but he had his sleeves rolled up and he had red hair on his arms, very light red hair. So anyways, we did report it. These tips came to nothing. But a few days after Maloney escaped from the hospital, his lawyer, William Power, received a call. Rochester, Democrat and Chronicle. Maloney called two days after his escape and talked to his former attorney for about 25 minutes. He said in his 4 a.m. call that he was good and that he had some business matters that he had to take care of. No one, it seemed, knew of Joe's whereabouts during this time. Then, a week later, Maloney called Power again and announced that he was ready to turn himself in. He arranged to meet him at a hotel in Buffalo. It was time to give himself up. 
His lawyer said that he and an associate waited in the hotel for about an hour for Joe. We went outside and saw two police cars, one on each end of the block, and we went back to the hotel and stewed. We told the police to let us pick him up. The police had been told to leave us alone, that we would get him and turn him in, in Buffalo. Joe's lawyer believed that Joe was watching, and upon seeing the police, had changed his mind and went back on the run. Rochester Democrat and Chronicle, October 14, 1967. FBI joins Hunt for Maloney. Escaped murder suspect Joseph Maloney will be sought by the Federal Bureau of Investigation on a federal warrant, indicating he has either left the state or the country, an FBI source said last night. June and Joe's two young children remained in foster care throughout all this time. June's friends were frightened that Joe might show up at their doorsteps. Even Marcia, who was working in a hospital on the other side of the country, was anxious. Because I was working in an emergency department in San Francisco, and I knew Joe knew me, and I used to think, what if he ever shows up in my emergency room? I had a plan that if he knew me and recognized me, he would figure I would turn him in, so I would sneak out of the area and call the FBI. I mean, I had this plan all, all, all made out, and he never showed up. But By early November 1967, six weeks after he first escaped, there were still signs that Joe Maloney had yet to leave New York State. The Daily Messenger. Rochester City Police continued to investigate a report that suspected wife slayer Joseph Maloney cashed about $1,600 in bogus checks November 3rd in Monroe County. Two nights after the checks were cashed, Maloney was reportedly seen by four persons in the Canandaigua area. His son and daughter are staying with foster parents there. Rochester Democratic Chronicle, November 6th, 1967. An identification of escaped murder suspect Joseph Maloney last night sent about 50 law enforcement officers swarming into an area just north of Canandaigua about nine last night. The search party included two Rochester K-9 units. According to Canandaigua police, an officer had been sent to a trailer behind the Shamrock gas station on Route 332 on a complaint. The officers flushed out a man whom they and two women identified as the missing suspect. The man ran away from them, leaving his shoes and socks behind, police said. Joe had somehow managed to escape local police, the Monroe County Sheriff's Office, the state police, an army of bloodhounds and the FBI. Over the next six months, the feds received around 50 tips about Joe, but they were all dead ends. Gradually, the reports and sightings dwindled to nothing. The newspapers moved on to other stories, the police to other crimes, and the courts to other trials. Joe Maloney had vanished. Two years later, October 1969, Ireland. A man called Michael Grace applied to the court to legally change his name. The name Grace came from a, a child that was born in, it may be the Rotunda Hospital, to an English woman. Michael Grace was a baby born in Dublin in 1943 to a single mother with an address in England. The perfect candidate, perhaps, for someone hoping to assume a new identity. 
Superintendent John Mulderick was the police officer in Dublin who would eventually reveal Joe Maloney's true identity. It would appear that Maloney, on arrival in Ireland, visited the registry of births and deaths, observed the registration of Michael Grace, and then took on his identity, possibly assuming that the real Michael Grace had been taken back to England by his mother or was adopted. With a real birth certificate in the name of Michael Grace, Joe Maloney assumed the identity of that real person. It's a scam known in criminologist circles as a day of the jackal fraud, named after the book and movie of the same name. An unparalleled manhunt, a determined and relentless killer. Impossible to know, impossible to stop. The jackal moves closer to the moment of kill, to the day of the jackal. And once he'd assumed that identity, Joe Maloney added another layer of deceit. He changed the name Michael Grace to Michael O'Shea. I found a handwritten note in my handwriting. Um... Joe didn't tell anyone why he changed his name to Michael O'Shea, but Wendy Lehman thinks she may have found the answer. But it's a note that says that Maloney's father, James, I think, had worked at the hospital under a man named Michael O'Shea. That would be where he got the name. Joseph Maloney had now become Michael O'Shea, and the next chapter of his life, almost 20 years in Ireland, was about to begin. Join us next time for episode four, Living Large. In 1975, Mr. O'Shea took over this 19th century mansion, nestling at the foot of the Sleeve Bloom Mountains in County Leash. Set in 125 acres, Cabot House has its own courtyard, stables, and a marble staircase. As this is a live investigation, if you have any knowledge, no matter how small, of Joe Maloney, a.k.a. Michael O'Shea, or of his next wife, Sheila O'Shea, maiden name Chandler, please contact us immediately via documentaries at rte.ie. Runaway Joe is written, reported and produced by me, Pavel Barter, and Tim Desmond. Research by Nicoline Greer. Music is by Martin Kluzak and Tomasz Borrow. The sound engineer is Pader Carney. And the executive producer for RTE Documentary on One is Liam O'Brien. If you've been affected by any of the themes in this episode, please reach out to rte.ie forward slash helplines where you'll find contacts for a variety of support networks around abuse and domestic violence.